STEMI, the Stanford Emergency Medicine Innovation Podcast, where we explore the future of innovation within and around the field of emergency medicine. I'm Dr. Dan Imler, entrepreneur and faculty physician with Stanford University Department of Emergency Medicine. Each week, I sit down for a wide-ranging conversation with individuals pushing the boundaries of technology, research, education, systems, and design within emergency medicine. From the front lines of healthcare entrepreneurship to breakthroughs in the lab, we explore innovations in the science, practice, and art of creating precision emergency medicine that can transform healthcare for all. To stay current on the latest innovations and tips, please be sure to click subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please also send us your thoughts and questions to respond to in future episodes. And now, let's get started. Today, I'm sitting here with Ryan Ribera, um, who is a clinical assistant professor at Stanford in the emergency department, um, mm-hmm. as well as an AMA board member um, and the co-founder at Simex. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Ryan. Hey, no problem. Happy to be here. Now, note, I was, I'm was i a former AMA board member. Sorry, I, former I, AMA board I member. turned off. Yeah, that's correct. Huh. When was that that you finished? Uh, last June. Okay. And how long were you a board member there? Uh, so I was a board member for a year as a medical student and then came back and was a board member for two years as a fellow. Okay. Tell me more about that. I'd love to hear like what you actually did. I, I, I'm totally yeah. in the dark what happened during that time <laughs> for you. So it's interesting. Uh, I mean, the AMA is a very broad-reaching organization, right, who has, uh, in addition to their advocacy work, you know, like business products and um, a lot of public health campaigns and things like that. So the board is about a little over 20 people, um, mostly elected from the House of Delegates of the AMA, um, though includes also like the CEO of the organization and things like that. And you kind of run the whole organization from end to end um, and have oversight over the finances, and the business products and that sort of thing. Um, I think my contributions there were in particular around helping the AMA uh, be more involved in technology innovation. You know, I mean, I think the future of healthcare is going to be uh, shaped at least as much, probably more, by what is coming next in technology than what is coming next in policy. And so I think it's important for an advocacy organization that represents physicians to uh, be actively working to make sure that the future's technology tools are things that work with us and not against us. So that was a big part of my contribution was helping the AMA in setting up their new uh, innovation center, um, even an investment arm that looks at um, helping to fund innovations that are going to be helpful for patients and physicians. Um, The AMA set up a uh, physician-facing innovation hub that lets docs get more involved in technology innovation and find companies that are looking for medical experts expertise, and I, I helped provide a lot of input into that process as well, um, in addition, of course, to everything else the board was doing. So when you were on the board, are you, especially as a med student, were you, did you vote the same as all the other board members? You had just as much sway, or did it, was yeah, it a special seat? No, I, I mean, it is a dedicated seat in that there is always a seat for a medical student, and there is always a seat for a resident or a fellow, um, and for a young physician as well. But uh, they treat you just like anybody else once you get on there, which is a fantastic experience, uh, especially as a med student, when you're coming on there and you're meeting you know, people who have... Uh, been heads of all of military medicine and things like that who you, you yeah. are sitting next to in board meetings um, but they they treat you like uh, anybody else and I, I think it's smart too on the part of the organization right because they know that the decisions they're making now are going to affect the next generation of 
medical students and residents and, and things like that, almost more so than the docs who've been in practice already for 30 years. So they want to make sure the organization has that voice so that it's going in the right direction. Okay. So I know you mentioned that you thought the future of uh, medicine is very going to be very strongly tied to technology. So yeah. when you were at the AMA and they were setting up all this stuff, what, give me a couple examples of like what the innovation center was going to do and like mm -hmm. what, what they're, what they're imagining the future to be in terms of their, their role in playing in that. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I think the first question is a little easier to answer. I mean, the AMA has uh, a threefold mission, um, right now that is focused on pushing forward public health, um, helping to make the clinical practice environment something that is uh, more compatible with, fish, with physicians' goals, and then also reinventing medical education. And so I think those, those three arms also extended to what they were trying to do in technology innovation. So trying to find basically up and coming companies and technologies that are making inroads in those spaces. Um, so uh, for example, one of the early companies um, that came out of the innovation center uh, was, is called Akira or Akiri. It's called, it's called Akiri. Um, and it's focused on data liquidity and uh, kind of being a broker between different competing um, uh, EMR systems and things to help especially docs who have solo and small group practices basically have access to differing uh, uh, to the data that's inside of different EMR systems. So kind of an interesting approach to data liquidity, but definitely a problem we're all familiar with. Um, they're investing in companies that were doing uh, innovative kind of community health models. So one of the companies was called uh, First Mile Care that was basically trying to take what we know to be a successful model in diabetes and pre-diabetes care, which is um, kind of having community-based groups facilitated by, um, you know, a professional who can help advise on nutrition and lifestyle and things yeah. like that, and turning that into a kind of a, a location agnostic technology version of the same process where you, know, you can you know, use apps and online tools to be part of a similar type of community to help you manage your chronic conditions. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I think those are the kinds of things that the AMA is looking to help prop up. And that's, you know, those are businesses that are almost um, as much kind of social endeavors as they are business endeavors. You know, it's, it's hard to make a profit off of things like that, but that's yeah. not necessarily the focus, right? It's through grant money and partnerships and company and organizations like the AMA to try to fund some of those technologies that are just beneficial for patients. Yeah, I think that hits on kind of one of these reoccurring themes around medicine and kind of the social aspect of that, because mm -hmm. in some sense, if you're going to form a company like the ones that seem to be most successful, these cold hearted, you know, capitalistics, <laughs> like going, I'm going for a major profit, like that's the main goal of a company, right? Right. Versus, you know, trying to do something socially good in the world. How, how do you felt like kind of playing that back and forth? Because I'm yeah. sure there's, there's some thoughts there. Yeah, no, that's, I, I mean, that's always a challenge, I think, for somebody who's very public health minded and trying to engage in innovation. And I mean, you're very fortunate if you can find something that uh, uh, works uh, in both contexts, right, that provides a public health good and also has a business model that is sustainable. Um, and that, I, personally, I feel like I've tried to just kind of find uh, projects to get involved in that, that straddle both worlds in that sense. 
Um, but it, I think that is a, cont- <laughs> I don't have a good answer to be honest. There are unfortunately just a lot of great technology innovations out there that I think would provide a lot of good, but for business model reasons, they're probably never going to come to fruition. And I think that's just the nature of the economy that we live in to yep. some extent. Yep. I feel like that's, I've seen that a lot in medicine as well, where you'll see people who have these great ideas to help patients, right? But there's no money to be made behind them. And they end up on this kind of cycle of grant funding and there's just never going to, never seem to end up having a sustainable product that comes out of it. Yeah. I I will say, I was going to say maybe taking that in a slightly more controversial direction, but like, I I think generally speaking, some of the the transition that we've seen from uh, health related technology innovation, moving more and more out of academia and more into kind of some of the world of, of our large private corporations concerns me a little bit for that reason. Right. Um, There's, I think a lot of medical innovation, especially around development of, um, treatments, you know, medications, things like that has come out of academia first. And a lot of it has been government funded research or grant funded research from um, nonprofit organizations and things like that. And so uh, it's tended, I mean, obviously it's not a perfect system, but tends to focus on, you know, what is needed more so than what is profitable. Um, And I think, uh, you know, we are seeing a lot more of uh, organizations like Google and Facebook and even Amazon now and um, a lot of other kind of and we're seeing a lot more venture capital interest in uh, medical innovation and I think I think that can be good but I think they are risky waters to navigate and one of the things we could lose is is really that ability to use those funds and use the power of those organizations to promote things that uh, maybe aren't as profitable, but are better for the public health. So I think that is just something we have to be aware of as a society as we move more and more in this direction is how can we, how can we leverage those private interests um, and uh, all of the innovation that's there and still be able to carve out some focus on those things that aren't going to turn as much of a profit. Yeah, very true. Uh, Similar to how the issues are with Google around privacy and the data that they're collecting in Britain and a lot of other places as well. So you worked Mm -hmm. at Google in their search product for a while, correct? Um, Yes, that's true. And it seems like that might be a great model where you have a physician inside a tech company like that. What was that experience like? What, What were you doing there? Yeah, so I'll tell you that was really interesting. So I was I was the physician who worked on the health search team. So everything that has to do with uh, googling uh, diseases or diagnoses um, uh, that fell within this department. And believe it or not, there's one uh, part time, half time, twenty hours a week, one half time physician who oversees all that content. Um, And uh, you know, I will say that at least as it was structured while I was there, it, it perhaps was a model for how it can be done well because um, it fell, uh, our department fell under uh, a larger department within Google that was basically focused on the public good. Public good. And uh, at least ostensibly, they told us that, you know, what the work that you are doing is not about profit, is not about getting clicks. Um, it is mostly about kind of trying to ideate around what, products can leverage Google's uh, unique capabilities to benefit public health. And so a lot of the things we worked on there really didn't have a clear uh, profit benefit. So, you know, we had a a tool where if you Googled phrases that kind of indicated that you might be depressed, then it would suggest to you a depression screening tool. 
Um, and of course, uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with, uh, similar to that, if um, you start Googling things that are related to suicide that will bring up suicide hotlines and things. So a lot of those types of products were things that, that came out of uh, the group that I worked with. And you know, they don't really provide um, much profit benefit. Now that said, Google is an enormous organization and this is just a handful of people. And so uh, they were willing to dedicate some resources to these things, but um, I think there are probably much larger branches um, within that organization that uh, perhaps are blending the medical and, and profit focus a little bit more. Yeah, it's interesting how sustainable those end up being, especially in these times where um, we might Google might start to feel that squeeze. I can remember I worked on the Google Health Project like uh, 10 years ago when they were implementing at Stanford. And as soon as the Great Recession hit, that project dried up a little bit in terms of mm -hmm. where its kind of future focus was being. So it's interesting to see in these places where the product, the profit motive isn't the primary thing, how sustainable those things can be. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the thing is in the world of nonprofits or academia, that, that's kind of your primary thought. And I think in the world, in the corporate world, that's kind of the thing that you do when you can. You know, when you got some extra cash, why don't you make a department that is focused on just the public good? And I, I think you're right that when uh, financial pressures mount, then those are probably the things that can get pushed to the wayside, unfortunately. Yep. So speaking of uh, profit motive, you uh, also run a company yourself. I don't understand where you get all this time, Ryan, uh, because we haven't even talked about the fact that you have a bunch of kids. Um, uh, but tell me a little bit about Simex. I, I, I've, I've sure. never heard the kind of the founding story. I'd love to hear where it came from, like where you're going mm -hmm. with it. I'd love to hear all about it. Yeah. So um, uh, basically what we do is we make virtual reality and augmented reality medical simulation software. So the idea is that instead of, you know, a uh, simulation mannequin, which uh, are great, but they're pretty limited in what they can portray. You know, the demographics are limited that everyone's a 24 year old white dude. Right. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, the environment is always your sterile sim room. Um, instead, with virtual reality, uh, you can put on a headset, have a virtual patient in front of you, and they can be a baby or a grandmother. They can be vomiting or missing limbs. You can be pulling someone out of a burning car and resuscitating them on the ground. You can be in a transport helicopter. So there's just a lot more flexibility in both the, the demographics and also the uh, pathology you can portray and the environmental uh, and psychosocial pressures that you can place on somebody when using virtual reality for simulation. Um, and that's really what it is, is simulation. So it's, it's focused on uh, mostly academic centers, though I think increasingly community hospitals are having or uh, developing simulation programs. But it's really, this isn't the kind of thing that you do at home to you know, learn for the first time about what diabetes is. This is um, what you use to practice your skills um, and hone your clinical acumen. Um, we make uh, cases for physicians, nurses, uh, EMS providers, for the military as well. And we uh, currently are in a, a lot of major academic centers. Mayo Clinic uses it, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, U.S. Air Force, uh, a bunch of others. Um, and then as far as the founding story, it is kind of interesting. So actually, uh, I, I 
majored in computer science initially in undergrad and then uh, switched over to business. And then I was 95% done with that before I even realized I wanted to go into med school. So uh, I went back and did all my pre-med requirements while I was working for an angel investor and consulting on a lot of health tech startups. And so even when I went and started medical school, I knew that a big part of my future was going to be not just treating patients uh, clinically, but also uh, leveraging innovation to try to find better ways to, to treat patients. And so I was involved in a few different startups in med school. And then in my fourth year, I was doing a simulation rotation. So it was a whole month of just doing simulation. And, you know, I was using the mannequins that everyone's familiar with. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's fine. Like, you know, simulation with mannequins is fine. There's a lot of good things that come out of it, but you know, a, a good proportion of our sims are pretty compromised by the technology. Yeah. Um, and, and that was also when I learned that those things cost like fifty to $250,000 a pop. Yeah, they're insane. And, yeah, and I was like, this, uh, it blew my mind. And, and, you know, the technology hasn't really changed much in a decade. And as someone who is coming from a background in health, tech, health technology, I thought there's got to be a better way. Like, this is, this is something that is just ripe, um, just waiting for innovation. Yeah. Um, and so I was pretty familiar at the time with uh, up and coming VR and AR technologies, uh, but they really weren't out yet. You couldn't get a developer kit for Oculus or anything like that. Uh, but I, I knew it was going to be the future and it just seemed like it, this would be a perfect use case, right? Instead of a mannequin, you've got a virtual patient. You still get all that kinesthetic learning, that sense of space. You get to use your hands and walk around and do everything like you do in mannequin-based sim. So um, I formed a team. Um, and this is mostly uh, people that I had worked with previously on prior projects, either within the AMA or in some of my startup endeavors prior to that. Um, and we spent a couple of years really just in, you know, working on it almost in an R&D kind of perspective, um, getting developer kits as they came out. We were one of the first developers for Meta, which is one of the first augmented reality headsets that was uh, produced um, and really just trying to, to get the software end of it nailed down so that when the hardware was ready, um, we'd be ready to go. Did you and have so, money or anything, or did you just do this just no, on the side? A, yeah, in those early stages, we were just doing it on the side. And you know, a lot of our team members did, did contribute cash to the company so that we could buy hardware that we needed and things like that. Um, but mostly it was about, you know, we had a team that was really excited about the concept. And so they were willing to put in 10, 20, 30 hours yeah. a week yeah. to, to try to get, to get this developed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think another thing that was really fortunate for us is that half of this team was doctors. You know, it was, uh, you know, doctors at that time, doctors in training from UCLA, uh, UCSF, and uh, myself, I was in residency at Stanford at the time. Um, and that's a very often for a lot of health tech startups, that's the hardest thing to get, right, is the medical yep. expertise. Yep. Um, but, we, you know, we, we had that for free. So I think we benefited a lot from that. And then, you know, as the hardware matured, uh, finally we got to a point where the product was ready. And so about two years ago is when we started selling. We've been going from there. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about, you, you've said you, it's both VR and AR. I'd love to hear like, yeah. what is it actually like? Is it, are you in a completely virtual environment? Can you see stuff on a table? Like what, what do I actually see? Yeah. So we, you know, we initially uh, started developing an AR cause uh, we thought there would be some strong benefits to being able to basically place virtual patients in 
real hospital beds and use real uh, yeah. tools to be able to interact with them. And I, and I think there's still a lot of potential benefits there. And uh, we, we ended up hitting a bit of a roadblock in the sense that AR headsets never really matured as a technology in the way that we hoped that they would. Um, you know, even the second iterations of like the HoloLens or the Meta 2 before that company went out of business um, still had a lot of limitations around field of view and processing power and things like that. Um, and so we've continued to, uh, you know, our product is compatible with AR headsets, but I think the implementation that's a bit more polished and that uh, essentially all of our customers are utilizing now is a full VR implementation okay. um, where uh, you put on a headset, there's a, the whole room is virtualized. Um, there is a patient in the middle of that room and you are talking to them, you're using tools, you're diagnosing and treating their medical problems. Um, now, a couple of things that are unique about uh, the way that we handle it is we have multiplayer capabilities. Um, and so not just multiplayer in the sense that you can join from the internet and work together, that we do have that, um, but you can be in the same space and our, through a custom build that we've put together, the software will locate where you are in real life and line that up with where you are in VR. So you can high five in real life and high five in VR, right? And you can work together in the same space around this virtual patient, which is super cool. Um, and uh, the, the headsets that we use support a up to 30 by 30 foot space, right? So you can imagine that the combination of those two things means that you can, like for example, we have a case for the Air Force where it's a team of four uh, walking around a 30 by 30 foot space, um, blown up cars, they're, they're pulling eight, nine different patients out of burning cars and triaging them and working together to set up a helicopter landing zone. Um, so it is, it is very immersive and um, kind of very wide ranging and uh, is very freeing. You're not, you're not standing in front of a computer with a wire coming out of your head, just moving a few steps in any direction. Like you are you're running around the space and using your hands and working together as a team like you would in real life. That's cool because I feel like when I'm in doing sim in a regular situation, at least halfway through, everybody starts to just realize this is not real. You lose yeah. that, <laughs> that presence, right? And I feel like in VR, especially if you can really truly grab that presence, that mm -hmm. goes away. And that's like this ultimate dream of simulation where you're sort of reenacting. So the next time in real life, it's happening. Yeah. Um, what, other than the military, like if you were an ER doc or you were some other doc, what, what kind of situations are you going through there? Are you running codes? Are you doing, you know, just regular kind of visits or is it always like an intense situation or is it just, could it be anything? Yeah, no, we, we have a wide variety of cases and it's really guided by our customers. So, you know, we, we partner with an organization and then uh, we build them all custom cases. So we, we built the software in such a way that we can now rapidly build very custom scenarios. And so some of our, a lot of our customers ask for relatively intense situations because those are probably harder for them to replicate in normal sim environments. Um, but we have scenarios where it's, you know, you're just talking somebody through a new diagnosis of diabetes in a clinic room. Or, you know, we have uh, one customer who asked us for a scenario where you are just managing the front desk at a clinic and people are upset that they're waiting so long and you have nice, to help them nice. reschedule, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, now, and then on the other end of the spectrum, of course, we, we um, have a lot of very complex scenarios. And I, and I think that is part of where VR shines, right? So, uh, for example, we're building a scenario for uh, Children's National, which is a, a major pediatric hospital. Um, and many of their scenarios are really just like neonatal resuscitation, um, 
but the parents are there and they're crying and you have to explain to them what's happening while you're resuscitating their baby. And that's, that's every day. If you are a NICU doc, like that, that is your core skill is being able to manage these complex algorithms while being able to, you know, manage the emotional and psychosocial side. But that's really hard to sim with current tech because you've got to have your uh, infant mannequin, you've got to have all the equipment replicated that you would have in a NICU, yeah. which is very complicated. You need to have the actors there. And it's kind of, it's the only, it's the kind of thing you can only do on like a Thursday at 11 a.m. because it's the only time everyone can be there. You can only do it once a year. Yep. But with our tech, they can, it literally sets up in five minutes and they can put the headset on, have all of that psychosocial realism, the medical realism, um, uh, all together and you can do it every day and you can do eight of them at once. And so it's just, uh, I think that's really where VR shines is bringing all that complexity together. Yep. How much of it, um, will adjust to your decision-making? Cause I feel like that decision tree could get really complicated really fast in the software. So <laughs> I'd love to see hear how you, uh, you deal with humans inside of a computer simulation. Yeah, you know, I laugh because we actually just had like a three-hour meeting yesterday trying to, to figure out how for some of these very ultra-complicated cases we've been developing lately, uh, you know, how do we represent the complexity of, of the many directions these, uh, these uh, trainees can go. And so there's a couple ways, and this might be a little bit more detailed than uh, your audience is interested in, but there's a, a couple ways you can go with this. Um, so you can either develop a full physiology engine um, where you really replicate in code the physiology of your patients such that, yep. and, then you, and then you build into all of the potential tools and medications what their impact will be, and then you just model that. And uh, there are physiology engines actually that are open source that you can get that are very comprehensive. Um, our experience was that uh, they don't work that well, and also they end up working against you as much as they work for you. I mean, one of the things that I realized as we started developing a sim product is that instructors often don't want perfect realism, right? They, they want to, to take you through a story to some extent, their learner through a story and teach them certain learning points. And sometimes when you add too much physiologic realism, it gets in the way of that as much as it helps. You know, they don't, they don't want, if, if, if their learner who's a first year medical student actually gives, you know, 20 milligrams of morphine instead of five, they don't want the patient to fall asleep for the rest of the encounter and yeah. not be able to continue <laughs> with their learning goals, right? They, yeah. they just want to be able to brush over that and let them learn what they're supposed to learn. Um, so what we actually ended up doing instead was a state-based model where the uh, case authors who are often uh, our customers in collaboration with our team uh, set up a series of states and say, you know, here's what I want the vitals to be in that state. Here's what I want the critical actions to be. And if they do this, they'll go to state two. If they do that, they'll go to state three. And so it can really branch out from there. And you can still make very complicated scenarios that can start in the field and go to the ED and go to the OR. You can have multiple patients, each with their own state flows, driving them in the background. Um, but it does give the case author a little bit more control to put the case on rails and um, prevent it from, uh, you know, getting off into the weeds. Yep. So, so far we've mostly talked about this technology as simulation, but mm-hmm. in my mind, it's not that far of a jump between actually treating real patients in this similar environment virtually mm-hmm. rather than it just being a simulation. How much have you guys thought about that? Um, I know it's yeah. maybe a ways off, but like in my mind, I, I can't see how 
a, a fundamental difference between those two? Well, so I say the one fundamental difference between those two is the tremendous amount of regulation that becomes involved when you are bringing sure. technology into an actual clinical care encounter. And so from a pure business strategy perspective, I think one of the things that we really like about what we're doing now is that because it's focused in the education space, um, we don't have to worry quite so much about that. Um, but I do, I do lecture on, um, you know, VR and AR in medicine generally. And, um, you know, I think obviously there are a lot of other potential use cases. Uh, you know, one of the things that people talk about a lot, specifically in AR, is being able to use that in a clinical encounter where you can imagine if you had a Google Glasses style headset on and you walk into your patient room that, you know, it's pulling information from the EMR and off of their arm, you see a little note that they broke this arm and had it surgically, you know, a, a, a bar put in it in 2009. And, you know, you see that a little note that they had an appendectomy 30 years ago coming out of their right lower quadrant, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and I think there's something very cool and futuristic about that. I personally am not necessarily as convinced about the utility of it in an actual clinical encounter, right? Um, because still so much of what you do as a medical provider is time sensitive, such that uh, a technology tool, I think, would struggle to be able to provide you that just-in-time information in a way that you could then process and use. Um, you know, I, I think we've learned going through medical training that a lot of the difference between an early stage medical trainee and an advanced attending is not even necessarily the information they have access to because an early stage trainee can look up all the antibiotics they need. They can look up all the algorithms they need. Uh, the difference is that the, the experienced provider has internalized so much of that that they can incorporate it, you know, at will into an encounter and they can really focus more on the, um, you know, the psychosocial aspects of medicine and not so much on recalling or looking up what they need to know to get through the mechanics of it. And so, and I think most of our physicians are pretty far advanced along that pathway and such that it, it's, you know, you're not going to find an AR tool that will tell you how to comfort somebody in that moment or how to deliver bad news, you know, in a way that is going to empower them instead of um, make them uh, scared. And I think that those are the skills that are, more advanced docs still need to work on a little bit. It's not so much the remembering their past medical history. So you don't see it in a Google Glass of just showing a little set thing that says "Be compassionate." Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't find think a Kleenex so. or something like that. So it not... shows a little diagram of you patting them on the back and yeah, saying, "Yeah, exactly." Like, oh, good idea. No, yeah, I'm not sure how useful it would be for that. Um, so. You obviously have a lot of stuff going on and we're not even going to talk, like I said, not even talk about the fact that you have a very young child at home. Um, how do you, where does, how do you get this time? How do you fit all this in? How can you manage this? We didn't even talk about the fact that you're also the assistant medical director running half of the ER. How, where does, where's this time come from? I don't understand. Yeah. Well, so a couple things. I mean, uh, I think one thing I always say when people ask me that is that, uh, a big advantage I have is that um, I really enjoy the things that I do. So like my startup is kind of the way that I decompress, if you can call it that. Like I don't go to the bars. I don't go, I don't even really go to the movies. You know, I, yeah. I, I do spend time with my family and my kids. Um, but uh, my primary recreational activity is working on, you know, my projects, working on the company. And uh, I, I really enjoy that sincerely. And so that uh, helps a ton. 
um, it's also, you know, it's a team effort. Like my, my wife is also amazing. She's a, a very talented artist and, you know, we, we work together to really make sure that we can uh, both have the time that we need to, to get stuff done. And that, uh, you know, people laugh sometimes that my wife and I communicate often via calendar invites and just, <laughs> we have a lot of structure, um, that we have in place to make sure that we can carve out time for family and carve out time for the things we need to work on. Um, and then, you know, I, maybe this doesn't work for everybody, but for me, I really like just waking up super early and cranking out tons of stuff. Um, when I was a resident, it was the only way to do it because you do a 12 hour clinical shift and there is no way you're getting anything meaningful done after that. So the only way I could do it was, you know, even if my shift started at six, I'd wake up at three and get at least three hours of, you know, emails and work done and do my shift six to six and go to sleep when I got back. And that general pattern is something that I have followed is just, I, I wake up super early. I crank out a bunch of stuff and I probably go to bed at nine 30 most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, that's a pretty good life. I, uh, is there caffeine associated with that? I hope. Sure, sure, of course. Yeah, it, it does require a fair amount of caffeine assistance to sustain, but it's uh, so far uh, working out. So, classically in in the entrepreneurial world, and you'll hear this a bunch of times when you talk to VCs, people always talk about being all in on whatever project mm -hmm. you're in, right? Mm -hmm. But here you are. You have a startup. You're involved in all sorts of projects. You're still mm -hmm. working clinically. How have you felt about that and, and negotiated that, both talking with investors, um, yeah. but, but also just like your internal focus of how you say, okay, I want to take this thing all the way to its fruition, but yeah. I have so many other possibilities and opportunities that I could do. Yeah. Well, so a couple things. Uh, I mean, one, I will say, I think that mindset, and, and I think you're right that that is a mindset that is very popular amongst investors, um, is one, something that probably came out of more traditional, like software-based startup mentality. Um, and two, I think is something that inherently, uh, I think un unfortunately leads to probably some poor investment decisions around medical startups in particular. Because um, if you expect a, uh, like we talked about earlier, one of the hardest things I think for health tech startups is to get medical expertise. And I think if you, if you impose a structure where you say, well, you know what? Uh, in order for us to invest, you know, a million dollars into this startup, uh, you need to leave clinical medicine entirely and you need to dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to this. Yep. Um, one, I think you're going to have a very hard time getting talented medical experts into that because, you know, medicine is a calling. I'm, you, there's really not enough uh, investment money you could give me to convince me to leave medicine entirely. Um, and two, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I mean, I think one of the uh, uh, what you need in medical expertise in a health tech startup is not just somebody who went through medical school. I mean, ideally it is somebody who understands what it's like to treat patients who understands the complexities of how um, hospital and, and medical operations work and how a new product might be integrated into a workflow. And, you know, once you've left clinical medicine, you maintain that for, you know, six months maybe or a year perhaps, but medicine changes so rapidly that, you know, you've, you've lost the utility of that individual. And I think it's a, a long-term harm for the startup. Um, so that's, that's my general thoughts on that mentality is I think that's part of why the uh, investor uh, class uh, kind of VC world has struggled a little bit with breaking into the health tech uh, investment space and being successful is because um, 
you really can't get insiders into it unless you're getting people who are actively practicing medicine engaged. And I think the, the typical framework biases against that. So you've worked with probably many, and I have too, of the student who's gone through medical school, got his MBA, doesn't even do residency and goes off into the world. What, what do you think about yeah. that, that model? Sure. I mean, there's, I think, I'm, I, I have friends who've done that model, and yeah. I think there are certain jobs you can do where that is totally fine. Um, I think, uh, obviously, I don't even think people with that background would claim that they are then necessarily qualified to help guide a particular company in how to, to enter into the healthcare system or how to sell a product to doctors. I mean, they, they might, they probably have a little bit more insight than the average person, but um, you know, I, I think... I personally have felt like there's a ton, a ton of benefit to me um, to both be, to be practicing and to be very actively engaged in hospital operations um, and to be running a startup. I, I feel like it's extremely complimentary. Um, and just, in fact, to hit on that a little bit more, I mean, I, I think it might seem like all the various disparate things that I'm doing could compete with one another, but I, I, I think for me, I, I feel like I have carefully chosen them to be things that um, actually complement each other very well. Um, you know, I, I think, as I touched on a little bit earlier, and the fact that I'm you know, assistant medical director of the ED, I think has given me a really deep understanding of how uh, the intricacies of how different hospital departments engage with each other, you know, the different purchasing centers within a healthcare organization and how they make decisions. And those are things that have helped tremendously as I've been trying to take my, you know, our startup company and um, you know, navigate those same waters to find the right customer within a large hospital group. Uh, similarly, my work in the AMA and understanding national policy and what's coming down the pipeline um, gave me insight into the fact that, you know, uh, Medicare regulations are changing such that even community hospitals now um, have a financial stake in meeting certain metrics. And so, you know, we use that information to start pitching CIMEX to community hospitals and saying, hey, you know, you've got new CMS metrics coming down the pipeline. I know you don't have a simulation program, but maybe you should get one and, and use these simulations to train your docs on how to make sure they're meeting their sepsis, their, their sepsis bundle compliance is high, or they're meeting their door to balloon times. And um, so I think it, it all really has worked together very well for me. Um, I, I think also, I, I guess then taking it the other direction, uh, my experience in the startup world and seeing how kind of uh, rapid innovation um, and uh, small, very nimble teams can be used to accomplish really big things is something I've been able to bring then into the academic and operations world and uh, you know, try to structure our own innovation processes and model them after some of the successes I've seen in the startup community. So. I think it really has ended up being very complimentary. Well, good. I think that's, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Somehow you have to do it all to do it correct. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no problem. This interview is intended to explore the process of innovation and does not in any way indicate endorsement by Stanford or by our physicians of companies or products being featured.